Welcome to the Moving Beyond Your Tribe, where we dig deep on how to stand out from the crowd by building bridges and breaking free from the comfort zone of colloquialism, industrial language, and jargon to find new words, new thinking, and new approaches to ignite action, mobilize a wider network of ambassadors, create customer loyalty, even in a downturn, and build better internal culture. Hi, I'm your host, Torin. I'm bilingual and throughout my life have straddled two cultures, Norwegian and American. I've worked in 10 different industries spanning 25 countries. I have seen firsthand the power of diverse collaboration to create impact across cultures, countries, and the political divide. On this podcast, we will bring on notable leaders from all walks of life to teach us and provide us tools on how they have moved beyond their comfort zone and create amazing breakthroughs of profit, opportunities, and impact. Now let's get started. Welcome to Moving Beyond Your Tribe. I'm really excited to get my wonderful former colleague. We worked in Senator Hatch's office together and really admired him. And we're working now together on a think tank called the Council for a New Economy. And and we're just going to be talking about a little bit what JJ's done. He's been an expert on utilizing language to reach a goal. So welcome, JJ. Thanks for having me. <laughs> How are you doing today? Doing great. <laughs> so I think you should tell it a little bit about yourself. I remember meeting you in, I think it was in the Russell building. You were a legislative assistant and I was a newbie and you're there with all these, you had like the best job, I think, because you were working on natural resources and all the beautiful nature in in Senator Hatch. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to Senator Hatch's office. Okay. Well, I grew up in the Foreign Service and I, in high school, I decided I'm going to go make a bunch of money or else I want to do public service. And somehow I chose public service and I was going to go into the Foreign Service and was getting into my master's program about where I would start doing that. And um, I'd grown up in the Foreign Service, so it was very natural, but then the Iron Curtain fell. And every textbook, every theory, everything was based on this bipolar, mad world between the Soviet Union and the U.S., and now everything had changed. And I realized the professors had nothing to offer. They were all trying wow. to figure it out. None of the books were relevant. And so I was wondering why I was paying them to teach me when I had actually had more experience overseas than they had with my dad. And so um, I shifted over to more domestic policy and trade and environmental policy. So did I've you always, study that? Yeah, I shifted into a formal emphasis for my master's in public policy towards trade and environmental policy. I'd been a rock climber and a kayaker and member of Greenpeace and the Sierra <laughs> Club. I founded the first BYU Habitat for Humanity, and it's still there now, you no know, 20, 30, 25 years later or so. So I was, you know, and I would, I would go to the eco-response, I had an eco-response group, and I'd go to them and. I was studying policy, and they were just a variety of students. And they'd say, hey, we have to oppose this dam here or this and this. And I'd say, okay, why are we opposing it? And they'd say, because it's a dam. And I'd say, okay, but <laughs> why do they need the dam? And what are, you know, maybe it's really a good thing. Maybe it'll save, you know. And they didn't, weren't really interested in actually analyzing. It was just like you're for stuff or against stuff. And I, start, I started realizing environmentalism that I grew up with in high school was it's not as thoughtful as I was hoping it would be. And maybe my policy studies um, contributed to that. 
Did you help enlighten their uh, their minds? No, I just focused on building houses for poor people because <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to partner up with Eco Response and Habitat for Humanity, and I thought that was fine. And, but I just realized that they didn't like me. They didn't want me asking questions, you know, the next level of questions. And that's how I was trained and raised by my parents is to always ask questions and not necessarily give into authority or authoritarian sort of ideas. So I was always willing to question. So it didn't work for me, but I still love the environment. I got that degree. I did a free internship out in D.C. so I could get closer to D.C. My dad and mom. Where'd you intern? I interned with a law office, a family law office, because I was going to go to law school because I wanted to use that to make policy. Came out to do that internship at the law office. I'd taken the LSAT and was working at looking at my applications for law school and decided I needed to do an internship in DC because I really wanted to do policy making. So I tried to get, you know, something in DC and get a night, night school for law school. Ended up doing another free internship on Capitol Hill. I had a master's degree and um, a wife and two kids, and so I took a free internship. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to go after your goals, right? If you have a goal over there and you're standing there, you have to go towards it. Instead of an easy route and just get a job, I had something that led and me And your to wife supported you. That was the key. And so she did. And so she taught dance, and my parents just moved to, back to D.C. because my dad was stationed at the State Department, and we lived in the one room of their little apartment. I ended up getting a job with Senator Hatch. I called in all my chits, and there was an opening for a receptionist job. And I had a master's degree, and <laughs> two kids, and in public policy. And I, it took me about two seconds. I was like, wait a minute. I gave myself seven years to get on Capitol Hill because during my policy studies, I realized that if you want to influence policy, you want to be a gatekeeper. And the gatekeepers are those little brats on Capitol Hill. That was disturbing to learn that, and then it took me a month or two to realize, wait a minute, that's what I want to do then. <laughs> and so I, that was my goal. I gave myself seven years, and within after just three months of interning for free, I had a chance to actually get in one of the offices. So I brushed off the fact that, oh, it's a receptionist job. and I went in, and I called in all my chits. And they gave me the interview because of all the chits, but they were not going to give me the job because I was overqualified. I went in there, and there was um, Wendy Higginbotham and Chris Iverson were interviewing me. Chris Iverson was still there. She interviewed me. She was the senior <laughs> policy advisor at the time. And they were there just to let me know that politely they gave me the interview because I had so many good shits I'd called in. and um, But that you know they were really looking for someone just to be a receptionist. I said, I'll be. I just listened to him. I said, for me, it's a dream come true. I'll be the best receptionist you've had. And they just stared at me, and I think they realized, the way I looked at them, they just realized, this guy's serious. So I got that job. And then after a year, I got into policy. I was able to start doing policy again. I mean, not again, but I was able to start. And it was great. Super happy to be able to get involved in natural resources. Like you said, it is the best job literally in the world. I handled public lands, agriculture, environment in a state like Utah. So my job was very often finding myself on, ATVs, going through wilderness areas, <laughs> boat trips through the Grand Canyon that are for work, um, horseback rides through wilderness with county commissioners, and uh, talking to farmers and riding horses. It was, it was the best job in the world. And then, you know, you go to a park and the superintendent 
spends the entire day taking you around personally and taking you to lunch and telling you about their needs. And it was a great job. So I, I, I would get a rental in Salt Lake City Airport, and I would hit every corner of the state. I'd usually put at least 2,000 miles on the rental before I brought it back because I didn't spend much time in the city. You were so lucky because any time I had to go to Senator Hatch, it was always in Salt Lake. We were like stuck in the office there. So you oh, yeah. were really, we were really envious of you. You should have been. <laughs> I was having the time of my life. You could tell that. Yeah, so I'm interacting with the county commissioners who are really the best kind of public servants because they, they cover large areas and they, they're interacting with the federal government and it's, it's just the best people. Even though I didn't grow up in Utah because my father was a foreign service officer, you know, my family was from Utah and Arizona, but I really became a Utah man. So I learned confronting the real big, tough environmental issues. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I have you on because I, I've admired you, and, and that's one of the reasons you're, we're working together in this think tank is the sense of bridging differences with the right language. And you've done that quite a bit in, in Senator Hatch's office. Yeah, so language became a real tool. First of all, it was an obstacle for me because in the environment, like even like I talked about in, yeah, so even like I talked about in college, the um, I was finding out that environmentalism what I want wasn't what I thought it was. It wasn't a discussion or an exploration. It was more like a um, just a reaction, and they were using language as kind of a blunt weapon. It was used to divide. I found that out pretty quickly. And so there's polluters. There's not businesses and soccer moms there's polluters and there's pure environmentalists there's the good guys and bad guys and the language usually is is set up to actually divide people and to put some people on one side and others on the other side now that's really good if you have to raise money for your environmental movement because if there's bad guys that are a threat to you it's much easier to raise money but not so, only environments do environmentalists do this. Everyone does it in policy. I mean, well, I mean, it's, you can't just say. I mean, NRA does the same thing, right? So it's kind of like these political groups have been using language to divide the American people. Right, or you could say people are using language against the NRA too. Right, it's a battle of over yeah. language both yeah. ways. I mean, the, the NRA is just we just want to own our guns, right? right? And there's people who are using fear to, and sometimes legitimately, and sometimes not, to like say, oh well. They're bad guys. It's, it's, the language is meant to divide. And so environmental movement, I found that out, that language was standing in the way because words are being used to mean something and they're almost never actually used to bring people together. Mm. And so when I started having the opportunity to pass real legislation, the first thing well, I learned even in college that you have to have bipartisan support. The process is too hard. To introduce a bill is a skill that you have to learn as a legislative staffer on Capitol Hill. And, you know, I have to learn how you do this and do that and you the little technical things and the language and where you send it to get it written up the right way and how you get it introduced and get the number you want on it, et cetera, et cetera. Getting a bill passed is a completely different set of skills. <laughs> and most staffers on the Hill, even who, the ones who have been there for a few years, actually don't know. They most there's Especially today. Not that many people actually know how to get a bill passed. I know. It's pretty tough. You have to really know how to press the flesh, talk to people, using language to unify. It's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough thing. Yeah. And so, and Senator Hatch is the expert at it, right? And that's what he's known for, reaching across the aisle. He's also criticized for it. 
but you don't if you want to accomplish something in the Senate, you have to you have to do some reaching across the aisle. It's impossible to do it otherwise. In the House, it's set up constitutionally that 51%, if you have 51% control, you can do anything you want. In the Senate, if you're the lowliest, least senator who's in the minority, you can stop the works. You can stop everything from moving forward with filibustering. So a very different set of rules, but the same bill has to pass both houses. I happen to have been in the Senate. So it doesn't make any sense not to start off with a Democrat. And this is, Senator Hatch understood this, and so I was trained by the very best at this. And, and Senator Hatch, is, just to let the listeners know, Senator Hatch was a Republican senator, and he came in in 1978, was it 78? I'd, yeah, something like that. 78, day, and he yeah. just left, was it two years ago or something like that? Yeah, about four years ago. And he ago. was one of the most prominent senators two. that was known to really be great at passing bills. And like we like to say in, it's, he was a workhorse instead of a show horse. He's a little bit of a show horse too, but he he was absolutely um, a doer. And other uh, happened all the time. In fact, you know, when you're calling up and you're saying, I'm calling from Senator Hatch's office, you tend to get the CEO on the line anytime you want of any company. But I found out that even among staffers, when I told them I was with Senator Hatch's office, I would get the response is quicker, even from both parties, because mm. they knew that he was a serious guy. Right. It was like, oh, if he's doing a bill, it's probably going to pass. We need <laughs> to get in on this, you know, right. either get our say in it or ride along with it and get credit for it. I, and people would even tell me that. Staffers would go, well, yeah, we would definitely. And so they started seeking me out as well. Other staffers would say, hey, we want Senator Hatch on this bill with us. The Democrats would call us because they knew what that meant because he would get stuff done. Right. They want to get stuff done. And he was a doer. And if you just add up the numbers, and there was, um, his name was Lee Davidson. I don't think he's still a reporter for the Desert News, but he used to be. And he, I remember him. He covered D.C. And every year he would do a batting average. He'd say, okay, this is what all the Utah members of the Congress introduced, how many bills, this is how many they got passed. And Senator Hatch would like, if you added up all the other members, the senator and the other congressmen from Utah, and how many bills they introduced versus passed, he would double their totals alone. Right. It was crazy every year. He's a, he was a doer. And so I learned from the very best. You start off with a Democrat. And you start off with finding out what they need and what they want. And you really listen. And you figure out. You don't worry about language. You look past the language and figure out what people actually want. How and do you do that? Because sometimes I feel like you get this veneer. People keep saying mm -hmm. something that doesn't really seem or resonate with what they really so want. So sometimes you have to know what they want for them. Okay. And so I would do that. That's one thing I learned from the senator and that I really honed that skill was you just watch and you kind of know, okay, they're from this state or they've made this a priority. We can give them a win there and they can even claim it for what they need. But we're getting the win we need over here and it might be a complete different win. The best thing is to be completely honest about what you need to them and to be completely honest about what you think they're getting. Because if they, if they know you understand what they want and that you're going to protect that, then they're in. Right. But they need to know that you understand their needs right. to trust you. And so I tested that and it works. And so the first really big bill I did, well, I did a couple of bills that were pretty nice, that were bipartisan. I worked with the majority leader, Senator Daschle at the time, got some things done because of that. So the pattern worked then. 
But then the first bill that I did was, was to promote hybrid vehicles and alternative fuel vehicles. That started off with the natural gas industry folks coming to me and saying, hey, we'd like you to do a, t- a tax credit for vehicles that use natural gas, and it's good for the environment. And I just say, yeah, it sounds like corporate welfare. <laughs> you bring me in a serious environmental group who wants it, and then I know it's actually good for the environment. So I'm telling, oh, as a Republican, great. I'm telling the natural gas industry this. And they're like, okay, we'll be right back. <laughs> Took them a couple months, and they show up with, guess what? Sierra Club. Envir- uh, environmental defense, nature, con- not nature conservancy, um, uh, union of concerned scientists. And they're like, actually, we really all would support this. And then I was like, well, what about the automakers? And so they come back a couple months later. The automakers <laughs> are there. It's like, because Ford was doing natural gas vehicles. We're like, if you can do the vehicles too, you know, you got to, the vehicles are really expensive. We think the public wants these. We're willing to, we're willing to make these vehicles. Heck, a tax incentive would actually accelerate it. And I'm like, okay, the environmentalists are convincing me that this is good for society. The gas industry is convincing me that it, the gas is available. And the auto industry is convincing me that it's something they would do. You right. can't use tax incentives to do something that would never happen on its right. own. You use tax incentives to accelerate something that would ha- that can happen, but you want to make it, you want to help it happen because Quicker. it's good for society. And so the environmentalists were willing to stand up and say, this is good for society. Now, why would I, why would I care about that? Well, I care about the environment, but Salt Lake City, 80% of the Utah population lives in the Salt Lake in Utah County Bowl. There's a big bowl there with mountains around it, and it has terrible air because of that. So the wind can't come through and clean out that air, and you get these terrible winter conversions. And you actually get smog, even though it's a beautiful, non, it's not really a breathing area. I've experienced area. that. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and people used to say, it's oh, sad. it's because Utah is all coal. No, it's all, it's all vehicles. Right. The coal plants in Utah, which are actually very clean, are all way outside. They don't can even contribute to that. It's the actual people driving their cars in, throughout the day. And anywhere else, it would just clear out with the natural air flow. But because it creates a bowl, especially in winter, it creates, we actually would not attaining EPA standards which is a huge cost on the state and on counties because they can't even get transportation plans in place without them getting approved by EPA. And they have to do all And that's all these the Environmental plans. Protection Agency. Yeah. And so it's a huge cost and a huge hassle for the state, but it's also an environmental problem. My mom died in Salt Lake City because of lung disease, and I've always believed that the pollution contributed to that. And so it actually isn't actual. There's actual real criteria pollutants in the air that are bad to breathe into our lungs. And most of Utahns are living in that scenario. Plus, it's expensive to do transportation plans. So there's a real incentive. This is something Senator Hatchie really should be working on. But he's a Republican, right? So there's a couple different ways of going about accomplishing things when you're a policymaker. The first option is always to do nothing, right? The other option is to try to get the administration to change an action. The and administration, to, you mean the White House? The executive branch. So yes. the White House with all the departments. All the departments. But if you're going to pass legislation, you either create a mandate, you start forcing people to make a change or do something different, or you create an incentive for them to do what you want them to do. And so you can either, or you can like, for some reason I'm spacing on a third option, but it'll come as we talk. So you, you either want to make them do something, or you can give an incentive to do some, or you can just create standards. That's the third one. So you can just, for instance, there's um, 
clean air standards. So you can have this many particulates in the air. You can have so much of these, uh, these gases in the air. And if not, you're not meeting the standards. And those standards can be shifted, right, right. up and down. And so you can shift standards, and that's a really good role for the federal government, actually, mm. to set standards. Some people, the more liberals in Congress, believe really like mandates. We're just going to make people do stuff. As Republicans, we didn't like that. We think businesses shouldn't be told what to do exactly, so as much as say, have standards to meet. So you would say the difference between the parties, from your interpretation, is that mandates are more a tactic that the Democrats would use versus Republicans using more of an incentive. Yeah, it, because it's cleaner, right? Hey, this is what we want. Everyone has to do it. Boom. But the Republicans are going to argue, okay, that's not, we, we're a little more about the free market, more about liberty. Let's let the market drive things. And so let's do some incentives. So as a Republican, I was like, okay, we've got a problem. And I think I agree with the environmentalists. This is not good. My mom did pass away. It's costing us money. Uh, we're not going to change these standards and we're not meeting them. So, and we know that it's a vehicle problem. It's a mobile source issue, meaning vehicles, right? Trucks and cars. It's not the, it's not the um, coal mines and stuff like that. They're outside of this area. And so how do we go about it now? Well, Senator Hatch happened to sit on the, sit on the finance committee and he was fairly serious, seri um, senior at the time on the committee. That's where you create tax law and that's where you would create incentives. And so it, Instead of handing out cash to people, like with an appropriation, we gave people tax breaks. We gave people tax breaks to solve, to, to actually promote alternatives to fuel. Now, there's a reason, another reason that I thought this was important to do besides cleaning the air. And that's because it actually made good energy policy. And this is how I was able to sell the Republicans on a proposal to help clean the air which didn't seem to be their top priority. They're all for it, right? But that's different. And it, but it, but it, they were always forced to oppose it because the Democrats were more aggressive on cleaning the air and they were using mandates and higher and higher standards, which we thought was, you know, always a little bit too stringent as being, you know, trying to make sure businesses can survive and the car companies can be competitive and yada, yada, yada. We were always kind of forced to oppose those. So it's like, how can I come in now and break through this logjam and still accomplish a goal that we actually all want clean air, don't we? Every one of us does. But the language and the tactics were separating us and dividing us. Say that one more time. So we all wanted the same outcome. And we all have the same value of clean air. But tactics and the language used in the policymaking were dividing us. So we're stopping because of language and tactics. Because, because, um, because... Language was saying there's good guys and bad guys. There's right. polluters. An oil company is an automatic polluter, even though every single person in the world needs oil, right? <laughs> We're all driving these cars. You know, the best environmentalists in the world are driving cars. You know, these days they have better options. But in those days, everyone was driving a gas car. You all need it. And everyone complains when gas prices go high. But and somehow they're the bad guys, the ones this? that are supplying that fuel. What's that? What year was this? Around 2000? Oh, this is like nine, late 90s. Late 90s. Okay. Yeah, when it started moving on this proposal. So there was this, it was divided. And it was meant to be because the press feeds on division, right? right. Because it makes stories more interesting. A boring story is, you know, a story where, oh, they accomplished something kind of nice and they all got along. It's not actually the best story. <laughs> no. It doesn't quite capture, it, it doesn't capture emotions no. like battles do. 
And then party <laughs> leaderships like the division. Right. It's like the head of the Democratic Party and the head of the Republican Party actually both play into that division. So the Republicans also benefit from the divisive language that the environmentalists choose right. because they now make the environmentalists the bad guys. Right. So I'm running around rural Utah with farmers and county commissioners, and it's you know the environmentalists are the bad guys. And so both parties benefit from the divisive language. So the parties benefit, the fundraisers benefit from it, the media benefits from it, and the groups, the interest groups benefit from it. So it's built in to be divisive. You actually have to be creative and break some mold. You actually have to break something to actually cut through that. And Senator Hatch was the genius of that. Um, so anyway, and that's where, you know, that's where uh, we both that's pretty powerful. From. So here I had the, the, these groups, right? And they were all agreeing. Yeah, we all think alternative fuel vehicles are good. And then I personally added on the whole other element, which is actual policy for energy. I wanted to make sure it made good energy policy, too, because I was an energy staffer. And so I, just from, you know, studying and being in that business for a while of policymaking on energy, it, it fle- four sort of priorities fleshed themselves out to me that just be, were very obvious. And I never heard anyone else actually put them together, but I think everyone sort of instinctively knows that these things are true. And if you're just talking about trying to make America stronger— and because this was one of the things that ate at my heart was that no one could talk about energy policy anymore. It was always talking about something else. You're talking about the environment or you're talking about climate or you're talking about protecting a coal mine or an oil rig or whatever or oil prices. But no one was actually talking about what is good energy policy. And for me, it's like, mm. well, what is good for America? And so these are the four principles I developed that I said, I don't really develop them, but I sort of discovered, right? And it becomes A-A-D-D, kind of like ad, just to remember them. And so I talked a lot to, to groups about this and I always got a good response because I think I was tapping into the truth. One is that if you want to, your country to be stronger, then you need an energy source, energy sources that are abundant. That's the first day, right? Abundant. They have to be there. You don't want to have, be running out of it, right? right? Like during the, the, you, during the Carter years, you literally had lines at gas stations because they'd run out of gas. You have to have a, abundance. It has to be there. You can't, be some, you can't rely on something that's not going to, to be around when you need to, to go up and down with the, the fluctuations of the economy. The other thing you want is it needs to be affordable, right? If energy runs everything, you know, you're wearing a piece of clothing right now. Like right now, you're wearing a, a red sweater. So let's pretend it's wool. It probably is wool. Right? It is wool. So that means there is a rancher out there that had to transport those sheep out to the grange, the range to, to graze, had to get water to them and use energy to do so. It takes a lot of energy to transport sheep around, um, a lot of diesel trucks. And then you have to get them to the... Um, you have to get them to the sheep shearers and do all that. And then you have to run all the machinery to get the wool separated. And then you have to, it takes a lot of energy to dye it. Then you have to get the dyed wool to whoever's going to manufacture the cloth. Then that cloth has to be transported wherever you're going to actually make the text, the actually clothing. Then the clothing has to be dyed. And of course, all that dye had to be done with energy to get it to there. And then you have to get it to the retail store and someone has to drive to the store and drive it home. Every step of the way, there's an energy cost. 
So if energy prices go up a little bit, the price of your sweater just went up a lot. Mm. Every step oh, of the way. And and you and you yeah. can't and whoever's listening to this now, you're either in your car or you're at your home. Except for the air around you, there's nothing in your car or in your home that doesn't come from mining or agriculture. Doesn't come from these natural resources that all use a great deal of energy to, to produce. It's either the plastics or the metals or the woods right. or, you know, the synthetic carpets. They all come from, from, from natural gas or oil or plastic industry. It all comes from, nat- all comes from mining or oil and gas. Even water is, you know, comes from the, the ground, right? And so other than the air we breathe, everything comes from agriculture or mining or oil and gas, right? Extraction. And so those energy costs play into everything. So if you want a strong economy, you absolutely have to have low, stable energy costs. So it has to be affordable. So you want energy to be abundant, and you want it to be affordable. And it's pretty hard to argue that you take away one of those things and you still have a strong country. Eventually, your country's going to get weaker. The next two things are the two Ds, right? So it has to be dependable. And there's two kinds of energy. At least it's, it, those are kind of merging now, but... Classically, there's two types of energy. There's the energy that turns the lights on and runs your buildings. And there's the kind of energy that you move around with. That's transportation fuel that tends to be liquid fuel, right? Only, only recently has it been electric. They've always been separate issues. And very smart senators would stand up on the floor and say, oh, the reason gas prices are so high is because we need more wind power. And I would just like palm, face to palm. It's like, these people are so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> there were no electric cars in those days. What does wind? What does what does wind power have to do with driving a car? There's no connection whatsoever. Complete yeah, different this was industries. Like Twenty years ago, they never talked to each other, and even I... still, it's that way. I mean, this car is not electric; doesn't plug in, right? No, no, no. It's still no. that way. Yeah. And Most so, cars. a wind tower and solar power has nothing to do with us driving this car or right. moving products or but shipping. But it could be. Well, but right, but it wasn't, and so. Uh. Anyway, so, but you have to look at both of those when you're asking these questions. Right. So you want your power, your electricity to be affordable and abundant, and your energy needs to be dependable. Right. And that's the first D. And so dependable means that you don't have brownouts in California, if you're talking about electricity. Dependable means you can actually depend on it. For instance, you can't really drive a semi-truck on ethanol fuel. It's just not strong enough. You can't really, you cannot get an airplane off the and ground with ethanol. Why don't you explain what ethanol is? Ethanol is an, uh, it's something that technically for the environment, they added it as an oxygenate to fuel, technically to make it burn cleaner. But it actually... But it comes from corn, right? It comes from corn and it actually has some real... Environmentalists are not the biggest... It's actually agriculture policy. Ethanol is not energy policy. Ethanol came about because of agriculture policy. Remember I said that energy policy is always hijacked by something else. And right. like I said, it ate my, ate my heart because I could never just do energy policy. And so we created this huge mandate where gasoline had to have this oxygen and they're claiming it's for the environment. But what it really was was about selling a lot more corn. And we happen to have the majority leader in the Senate and the agricultural leader and the leader of the finance committee, all from corn states. <laughs> and they passed this huge mandate that required, and the environmentalists don't like ethanol. <laughs> but it's so funny you say that because I worked for Senate, I worked for Congressman Issa for a while, and he's from California, and they were so against ethanol. And you're trying to change that policy because you just think it's 
just a pork, which pork really means it's just an added thing. To well, help that someone. was a mandate, but it was ended up being yeah. a mandate that required people to buy a lot of corn ethanol. Right. And you can get ethanol in other ways, but um, it, so it, we got the ADD. So we got the, uh, the abundant, there's a, there's a, affordable. And then there's the final D. So A A D D, and the second D is domestic. And so if it's liquid fuel, I mean, how many wars were we fought over liquid fuel? Right? We're always in the Middle East, and the excuse was always. You know, we didn't say it was the excuse, but it, the reason we were there was because of liquid fuel, right? Because we were 60% dependent at the time on OPEC nations for our oil. We needed a stable area and we needed good relations and we needed some control. We didn't want our, our enemies to be in control of that oil, those oil patches because we were highly dependent on those sources. So you and that's a huge find, problem. Right. And so, but in terms of electricity... It really is domestic. Power generation generally is domestic. We do it in America. You know, you don't. We don't have a lot of Canadian electron elect, uh, kilowatts coming over into our, <laughs> you know, or or from foreign countries. Right. And so, electricity actually is very domestic. So you and want it's those, abundant. And it's a very abundant. So and it's affordable. Well, now you're jumping the gun a little bit. Okay. So the um, <laughs> so those four things in these and and that's about. Energy policy. See, there's nothing in there about the environment. There's nothing about farmers. There's nothing about the air. That's about what, in terms of energy policy, are the elements that we need all four of those to be a, to make America stronger. But you use that in the framework mm-hmm. on a climate bill or alternative fuse bill where you had to get all the various sides together. So how did you then convince people that were not on your side right. to come together? So that you find out what they want. What they want. So And so in the environmentalists, they wanted the air cleaner and they want they were starting to talk about climate a lot and they wanted to show climate reductions. That's a win for them. The Republicans, they want some of them just wanted a stronger America, right? And so I used those arguments to point out that we need that fuel is very hard to compete on affordability and abundance. There's a lot of fuel available, and it's very, there's, it's, it's very, very difficult to compete with a gallon of diesel. It's incredibly packed with power and BTUs. Yeah. It's just very hard to compete with, and that's why the semi-trucks use it, right? Because it's mm-hmm. extremely dense for energy, and they can, they're long haulers, and they, have a lot of, they need a lot of power. And so things don't really match up. Ethanol can't really compete. It's not affordable, it's not abundant, and it's not dependable for a trucker. And so natural gas actually is not bad. It's cleaner, but it's not one of the criteria I'm using, right? Right. But it is it it is abundant, but the price was very spiky on natural gas in those days. Um, it would go up and down, but it was it was something that a trucker could use, but they would lose some range if right. they use natural gas. But it could go in cars, and so if you're driving a car. You can get pretty good range. You lose a little bit of range, but it's not so much that it affects you as much as if you're in a big semi-truck. And it's domestic. Natural gas is domestic. Where liquid fuels tend to be more imported. Right. Oil was being shipped from unfriendly nations and sometimes competitors and sometimes foes right into, you know, the Houston area being refined here and sometimes being shipped in already refined. And we were dependent and beholden to OPEC for those price swings. And they controlled the price band, how high and how low the price would go. They were actually in control of that. And the fact that they could control that price band and use that politically was 
bad for our national defense. It made us weaker. Right. That's why the domestic is actually very, very important. Even though I have it last, it was very important. Republicans hate the fact that we're dependent. We're okay with oil, but we hate foreign oil. Right. And so when I brought my AADD argument to Republicans, I convinced them that for, for even a hybrid where we're not using electricity off the grid, but we are generating electricity in the car while you're, while you're moving, it reduces every reduction of gallon that that vehicle would use over its entire life. And it would be many, 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 many gallons over the life of one of those hybrid vehicles or a natural gas vehicle. We're using a domestic fuel. To, we're displacing a foreign fuel. That's one gallon less for, we have to be dependent on for Saudi Arabia or Russia or Venezuela. And that's an argument Republicans really understood. They all want that. They're like, yeah, I don't want to go and pump Venezuelan or Russian fuel or Saudi fuel into my car. And if I can put out a car that uses 30% less fuel, that's 30% less dependency we have on foreign countries. So you got they, the Republicans. They responded to that. It worked. Right. And so I said, listen, we're using incentives, not mandates. We're cleaning the air. We're meeting the standards that we're always complaining about. But now I'm helping us meet the standards, the clean air standards. And we're cleaning the air. But the goals are is that these alternative fuels are affordable and dependable and abundant. You know, natural gas is abundant. And natural gas is pretty competitive on price. It and domestic. Actually, and it was domestic. And so that really worked. And so we started writing the bill to make everyone happy, the automakers. And we decided that we would have to go after, we put an incentive for people buying the cars, like a natural gas car or a hybrid car. We figured out what that incentive would be to make them kind of equal for the benefits there were to society. And the environmentalists watched that very carefully. And all along, I'm protecting everyone in there from each other. I'm standing up for all of them. I'd be but like, tell me all the angles that you're standing up for, because I thought that was what's okay, so, so fascinating. Well, okay, so environmental, so of course the natural gas car companies are not the same as the the hybrid car companies, right? So Ford's doing natural gas cars, but Toyota and Honda want to do hybrids. And how do you give an incentive that's equal for a natural yeah, how gas did you do car? That? Well, you let the that you let them fight it out and let the environmentalists be the judges. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> And, when the and so the environmentalists are like, yeah, we're getting about the same environmental thing for if you give them that much and you give them that much. And so we let them be the judge. You let them fight it out. And then you, you, they come back to you. You say, come back to me when you have your answer. And they come back to you. <laughs> and you let them fight it out. And so we figured so all So they fought things. it out. So like the environmentalists said, no, we don't like this. We don't like you gas. They're we don't the like your they were holding the truth because they They were actually, holding the truth. They, did, they, they were neutral. They actually right. were okay with natural gas over because it's replacing gasoline and diesel. Right. And they, they like the hybrids because it's reducing gasoline and emissions. Right. But what is that environmental benefit? They actually have those calculations. They had some smart people. And they kind of held the line. And I allowed oh, wow. them to That's do great. that. And by giving them that power, I'm making sure they get what they want. While still allowing the Ford to get their natural gas credit and Toyota and Honda to get their hybrid credit. And to be honest, the hybrid credit, actually, it's they're putting a little more into it. That was brand new technology. They have to make brand new cars. Natural gas, you just stick a different tank on and change some fixtures and your car's ready to go. It's a little easier to do the technology. It's not new technology. Right. So we gave a little bit of a boost to the people doing hybrids. And Ford started moving into hybrids too. 
Right. And they ended up having to borrow some Toyota technology to do it. But they, so they were, they were doing both natural gas and pretty soon they stopped doing natural gas and just focused on the hybrids. So we got that passed. It was hard to do, but we got it passed. For, how did you convince the environmentalists? Because I protected them. We did not, we actually, for instance, some people came and said, oh, we want a credit for being, doing lean diesel, which is a cleaner diesel. And that would have made the environmentalists leave the room. And so I protected, I fought that, those interest groups out. They tried to fight their way in using their senators and stuff, trying right. to get Senator Hatch to do this. And I, I protected the environmentalists and kept them out of the bill because they didn't want to be promoting diesel. And that was a real huge battle, actually. In fact, they hired <laughs> General Motors was jumping ahead and wasn't doing any of those things because they were jumping ahead toward a future of a hydrogen fuel cell car. And But they weren't going to be there in time to get these credits. You know, all these people would be sucking up these credits in the meantime while they're working. And, but they weren't doing hybrids and they weren't focused on natural gas. So they actually fought us. And then they were doing, Volkswagen was doing some diesel. So they tried to force that on us. And they would actually send some of the biggest lobbyists in town, Republican lobbyists, in to meet with Senator. And he held the line. He helped me hold the line. And that's what kept the, I, the environmentalists watched me protect them, their interests, by keeping those guys out. Because then they couldn't have stood up among their, their companions and said, oh, look, we, we got it, something for diesel. You know, they, they wouldn't have wanted to do that. So that was my job, was protecting, each, remembering what each one needed and protecting that. So everyone still got what they wanted, and no one felt cheated. And, in the and they end, also got their own language then, because they, uh, they somehow, when you create a bill where everyone got what they wanted, they mm -hmm. could easily find a way to communicate it to their constituents. Right. So in the drafting of the bill, you in, in the beginning of most bills, especially longer bills, you have findings. It's like Congress finds, these are just, it's not the bill, it's just because of this, because of this, because of these facts, we're doing this bill. Right. They're called findings. And they wanted to talk about, you know, because of climate, because of this. And I was like, no, nope, we're not mentioning climate in findings. And that was a hard pill for them to swallow. But I was holding the line on that. Why? I was, why was it hard? Why was that? Why did I hold the line? Yeah, why did Because I had to sell it to Republicans. They're not going to pass it because they don't believe in climate change. Why would they be going back to their constituents saying, hey, we're doing, spending a bunch of taxpayer money on incentives to, to fix the climate when I don't even believe the climate's a real oh, issue. Oh, that's interesting. So you really had to neutralize the language mm -hmm. so that everyone felt like they had a part, but not dominating. Right. So you got a different impression. So of the we bill. talked about affordability, abundance, things like that, so and clean air. Neutral. And clean air. We definitely talked about clean air, but CO two is not an, a pollutant. People say it's dirty, it's pollutant. It's not. It's super clean. It's like it's what's in your it's what's in your soda bubbles. It's the same, the same thing that you're drinking in your soda is the exact same thing that's in the air. that comes, right. And it's not, CO2 is not the, the smoky, dark stuff that comes out of a smokestack. Right. That's actually pollutants. Right. <laughs> the CO2 is a completely clean, clear gas, right. and it's, it's what we breathe out of our mouths. It's, right. We're not breathing poison onto each other, right? You can't breathe it in as oxygen, but it's not a poison. And so it's not a pollutant. So we talked about pollutants. We talked about clean air. That's, it is clean air, right? CO2 has nothing to do with cleanliness. CO2 is called a pollutant because it's language. Right. But it's a lie. <laughs> it's not a pollutant. No. It causes warming, which thank because goodness it does. Because there's too much of it. No, I never said that. No, but I'm saying that. It's like it's when they're saying it's in the global warming, there's too much of CO2 into the CO2 atmosphere. CO2 is, there's a certain amount of CO2 in this planet, and it recirculates through the ground, through the oceans, 
through the plants, through our bodies, and through the atmosphere. And it's just constantly circulating. It's the argument by the climate alarmists is that somehow there's too much in the air. That's what I was talking about. Okay. But we need the CO2 in the air, obviously, or we'd be a a frozen planet. Going back to the language then. So what did you learn from this process? Because you passed one of the most important... I learned that if you find out what people really need and you, you, you can find your own language that actually gets to what people really agree on, that you can actually work together. Expound on the last part. So the language, like we kept climate out because that was a device. That was a word. trigger word. I couldn't have won the Republicans over and Bush had just become president. And the Republicans were running the Senate. I had to convince Mitch McConnell at the time to push. Well, actually, at that time, was it Mitch McConnell? I think it was. I had to convince well, the Republican leadership and the Republicans on the committees that this was a good bill for them, that they can claim credit for their constituents. Right. And that means, hey, with incentives, we're getting there. With incentives, we're getting clean air. See, we like clean air. But they're not using mandates against us. Remember, Republicans are being forced to vote against clean air because they're doing it in ways we don't agree with. So I provided the Republicans a way to get there with their own values. And that's what I was. And the values are incentives rather than mandates and things that make America stronger. But what's interesting is. And make us less dependent on. But so how would the environmentalists use this? They used it. They claimed credit for climate, but only in their own press releases, not in my bill. Oh, that's interesting. So in the bill, you had a very neutral language where you used the AAD, AADD. And we talked about clean air, we talked about and, clean cri- air. and non-attainment areas, right? which is all we all agree on. We all want cleaner so air. So we all agree that we want cleaner air. So by being able to use such a neutral language, you were able to get people that usually don't work together on, on a climate or an environmental issue to come together. In fact, the Wall Street Journal did an article on this process saying it had never been done before that the Automaker Association, the environmentalist, and the, had come together on a major proposal. And it was, little, you know, me, I'm sitting there holding them all together as a, kind of a fairly <laughs> new staffer. But it was kind of noteworthy that it had never been done before. And it took a lot of work. And it was because Senator Hatch stuck by me. When he, the people put pressure on him to break up that bill, they wanted incentives for diesel they wanted incentives for other things and i would have lost the environmentalists and so they, we did lose an environmental the sierra club backed out the sierra club they were, wanted to be too strict they were like well if you're going to give incentives to an auto like to sell a car like a hybrid or a natural gas car if you're going to give federal incentives and the incentive doesn't go to the company by the way the incentives that was a whole other aspect of the tax policy we didn't talk about we made sure the incentives go back to the purchaser so we're driving demand Right. And it goes actually to the people, not to the companies. Right. That's less welfare, right? It's and like, so here I have to buy two cars. I would like a natural gas car, but it's a little more expensive. I'd like a hybrid, but it's a little more expensive. The tax incentive allows me to do something I would have That's liked what you do in Norway. Done. That's how we did the electric cars. It got so big mm-hmm. in Norway was because there's all these tax incentives. Exactly. So without mandates. And so the Sierra Club backed out because if, if you're going to do that, they're saying... Well, then you can't count that car on the cafe standards, which is the complicated thing that every automaker has to have an average of all the cars they produce meet certain air criteria. They're saying, well, you have to remove that from the criteria. You don't get to credit that benefit. Mm-hmm. It was like, didn't make any sense. They're just trying to be hard-nosed. And so the Environmental Defense, Natural Resource Defense Council, and Union of Concerned Scientists are like, bye-bye. 
Sierra Club, we're sticking with it because they watched me protect them. They saw that I was going to accomplish their all their goals. They could still claim climate. They could claim anything they wanted and they deserved it. They worked really hard. They earned it too. You know what I mean? They earned it. And so they got to claim credit for all these benefits and we really promoted these. And so natural gas vehicles had an incentive by the person who purchased them. The fuel that went into them got its own incentive. The fuel itself, there's a 50 cent per gas gallon equivalent. And even the filling stations were got an incentive. Like if you're a gas station owner, we wanted the infrastructure to be incentivized too. So you'd actually get help to purchase the equipment and to actually install the equipment to sell natural gas. And then as you're selling the natural gas, there's an incentive that goes to the um, user as well. So this wasn't the only bill, but this became your template. This was all one bill, all these incentives, all in one bill. And it was after that that I really started realizing that when it came to AADD, there was one thing that beat out, when it came to the transportation fuel, there's one thing that actually beat out diesel. And it really surprised me on all four of them. And what was that? It's called electricity. And didn't you work with Elon Musk on that? Yeah. Well, he really, really liked what I was doing, came and took me to, we had dinner for like three months. Three hours. And just, I'd have loved a bit of fly on the fun. wall. It was the best. <laughs> he, you know, he 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 had started Tesla, but it wasn't big yet. He didn't even have; they weren't even delivered yet. They were still, and so they were. Ve- we didn't do it for them, but they were very interested in the plug-in hybrid idea. And so, it's, but let me get how we got there. It was really me thinking about it and people talking to me. We realized that. Well, I realized that electricity is actually much more affordable than gasoline. It's much cheaper per mile driven. And there's abundance. So you see, look at it's your formula. It's extremely abundant. So you look at your formula, it's like a f- and abundant, and, and affordable. And it's not limited by resources. You can make electricity a hundred different ways. Right. You just make it. You know, you, you can do a nuclear plant. You have hydro that's just constantly making and it. you got sunlight. You don't run out of it in the ground. You have right. sunlight that never runs out. Wind never really runs out. And there's a million different ways. To, well, there's not a million, but there's dozen different ways to make electricity. Right. And, and it's domestic. And they're all domestic. Right. And what was the so other they're affordable. Again? They're much cheaper. It's like almost half the price of gasoline right. for driving a mile. If because it's made at such a high, you know, high quantities that it's actually very cheap. Right. So it's extremely abundant. It's extremely affordable. It's completely domestic. And, and it's, it's so dependable. Right. It's always there. Where is your, anyone who's listening to this, including you or me, are within a very short walking distance of an outlet. Yeah. There's literally electricity everywhere. And all it takes is a kind of a certain kind of plug and you've got it. Right. Everyone's garage can be a plug-in station. Infrastructure's already in place. Right. And it's American. It hit me. It, one day it finally hit me. It was like, oh my gosh. Everyone's always ripping on electric cars, but it's actually better for America. Right. The problem is the range, right? Americans like to drive across this big country and these electric vehicles don't have a large range. That is the one problem, right? But if you have enough charging stations and with technology, you can charge quicker. My gosh, that's really, really good for America because you use no foreign oil Mm. and it's cheaper. Now, remember, transportation costs are a huge part of the cost of everything, right? And if you're bring, you're making a so just like the much, wool sweater yeah. by using all that electricity throughout all the phases of mm-hmm. producing my red sweater, it would actually be cheaper because of that. Right. So now, I used to make fun of all the senators saying wind power because high pro- gas prices are somehow connected. I was like, 
actually, why not? Let's make that connection. And so I went to the same groups and I said, I want to do a plug-in hybrid vehicle. I want to do an incentive, another incentive, just to transform, bring the grid into the transportation as a transportation fuel. Because it doesn't mean oil's bad. I love oil. Right. I, I did some really big bills on oil. Right. <laughs> I'm all for it. However, I don't like the dependency on just one source. Right. Variety is good for everybody. That's right. why power generation is great. There's so much variety. Right. You can do different things in different regions. It's better for America to have more variety, right. more options, and they're all domestic. Right. And it's cheaper. It's like, wait a minute. This is good for America. And, oh, yeah, as an afterthought, it's good for the climate. Or it's good for the environment. <laughs> Whatever, right? I don't, and I'm, not, I'm a climate skeptic, so I don't even care about the climate that much. Right. I believe that CO2 is definitely a greenhouse gas. CO2 is definitely warming the planet. Thank goodness it is. I actually have done the math on the human um, accumula- the human addition to the CO2. I don't think it makes a difference that we can measure. So that's your opinion. And that's well, that's it's, good. it's yeah. the math. Yes. I've done the math. Yes. Okay. And, the, um, and it's the opinion of actually a lot more scientists than people would admit. And I can give you all the quotes. But, um, so, but anyway, I still didn't matter. I've already given you all the reasons why it's the best thing in the world to do. The, the environment was, I was actually making energy policy, not climate policy, not environmental policy. So I was at my best. I was like in my sweet spot. The very best thing we can do for American energy policy is to help shift transportation fuels into the electric market. Right. So you then decided to do this plug and play and you yeah. got the senator to support you. We got the center support because the first bill had been a big success and um, he got awards for it by environmentalists. And these poor environmentalists are standing there in their Birkenstocks handing him awards. And you can almost just see that it pains them. That a conservative. That they're giving Senator Hatch, you know, this icon of conservatism, this award. But they they had to because he really did it. And they're like, really, we're glad he did it. But it was just weird for them, you know. (laughs) So that was probably one of the most renowned climate bills to pass. It's not a climate bill. Well, energy bill. Yeah, see, that's the problem is everyone thinks everything's climate. It's not. It was an energy bill. And it was a good environmental bill, too, but it was an energy bill. So this was even <laughs> more of an energy bill. And so I called the same groups in. The same environmental groups were ecstatic. Did you call in Sierra to them? No, I gave up on them a long time ago. They don't, they're not so much about doing getting things done, I found out. They're not. If you're going to give your money to an environmental group, please choose environmental defense Natural Resource Conservation and NRDC, U.S. Uh, Union Concerned Science. Those guys are actually in the works trying to get stuff done. Sierra Club is just about throwing rocks. Anyway, so I pulled in the same groups, and now General Motors, who opposed us on the first one because they weren't doing that stuff, was actually going to be leading on plug-in hybrids because they had been trying to leapfrog into hydrogen fuel cells, and they realized plug-in hybrids was the next was the step to get there. And so now they're leading on that, and they're now joining the group, and they're a pretty good interest group to be behind you. And now, and I wanted a big, I wanted to really transform things, so I told them to come up with a big number. And so we all argued about it for a while, and I, I, I actually finally decided, well, I want $7,500 for anyone who buys a full-on plug-in hybrid vehicle. Now, remember, this, the, the hybrids are still getting their credit, a separate right. credit. But to one that actually links into the grid and makes makes the power generation industry part of transportation fuels, 
that's the incentive I was looking for. Mm. So it's a plug-in hybrid credit. It can be an all-electric or it can be a plug-in hybrid, which uses right. some gas. As long as you're plugging in and using right. the grid as a transportation fuel, right. that's what I thought would be important and good for America. Right. That's with big credit, right? right? And that's when I got Elon Musk's attention and he flew out and took me to <laughs> He wanted to find out what I was thinking and what was behind it and whether it was real or not because it was a huge calculation for him because that's a big credit. If you're going to try to sell a bunch of new cars that are very expensive, that's a pretty big incentive. Right. And this is a tax credit. This is not a tax deduction. A tax deduction means, okay, my income is now 7,500 less that gets taxed. So whatever percentage tax I get, it's that percentage of 7,500 is my benefit. No, a tax credit is no matter what you did on taxes, the IRS literally puts $7,500 in your pocket. Wow. It's a credit. It's like money. This is a big bill. Yes. This is a billion-dollar bill. But that's what I wanted. I wanted to transform the market. I wanted to do something. wanted to make it good for America. And it's a lot of technology, right? So it needs a big – it's a lot of batteries. It's a lot of new technology. It's a lot of new infrastructure. We needed an incentive that mattered or it wouldn't have made a big difference. Because I used the same arguments, and they're even stronger now. It was even more about energy policy than ever before. I was able to sell the Republicans on it. And the Democrats were there. And now we had GM not working against us, but for us. And it was great. And it would include, you know, anything that uses the grid. So that's actually been playing out over the last, like, eight years or so. I think it really has put more vehicles on the road. It really has reduced CO2 in the air, but I don't really care about that. Because I don't think it's, <laughs> no, it just doesn't. I know, no, but, no, but one forest fire and all that's wiped out. Right, right. But the point is, is it does, it's that much reduction in foreign fuel. It's that much less cost that people are spending on fuel. It's pushing us into the future. It's cleaner. It's quieter. It's bringing up some kind of cool opportunities and infrastructure is keeping up with it quite nicely. And it's, it's actually making us, you know, we don't talk about oil and gas prices the way we used to in the old days. It's different. We don't talk about foreign oil anymore. And a lot of that is because we've actually improved because of fracking, to be honest. We are producing a lot more oil and gas. That's the but biggest also, part. But uh, the fact that this is still contributing to that and we're just barely still, it's still, it's going to take a while for this to have a big impact, to be honest. But still, every single vehicle that's bought like that especially like a plug-in vehicle, like a Tesla or something like that. The lifetime of that vehicle will never use one drop of foreign oil and will be saving every mile it drives in terms of cost. Now, of course, those are expensive vehicles, but they're, they're expensive because they're super nice. You know? so what did <laughs> they're you, a luxury car. So what did you learn about this? Like I learned this whole process because you, you really had a major discovery, which I hope people, when they listen to this, really take heart, is that finding that reasoning that can go on both sides... What I found out is that most of us actually do want the same things, but the things are artificially put up, usually using language, usually language, to separate us and divide us because all the major players have an interest in keeping us divided. But it's possible, but if you can remember that actually we really do want the same things. I mean, just look at recently, okay? And Floyd was was killed by that when the, 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 the white cop put his knee on the neck of that uh, black man and right. killed him. A hundred percent of Americans, yeah, there's going to be some white supremacists, but none of us know who they are, and they're not even accountable. Everyone was outraged. 
doesn't matter whether Republicans, everyone is outraged. And somehow the media, the political parties, the groups were able to turn that into a divisive issue. Nobody was happy. Everyone was outraged that the police would act that way. Everyone thought there should be some police reforms. But it was turned with language and Black Lives Matter and demanding that people say certain words and using language. The division was forced on us. Naturally, we all had the exact same reaction. We actually, most of us actually want the same things. But when we use the language that's been provided, we forget that and we suddenly feel divisive because the language is intended to Because it puts us in division. It's intended that way. Right. It's not by accident. No. And I say, again, because the political parties benefit, the media benefits, the interest groups benefit. They benefit from the division. But so what I learned was that in almost every issue, you really can, we actually do all agree. The question is, are we allowed to focus on what we all really want? Now, we might want things different ways. And like I said, sometimes it's the strategy that uses to divide, like mandates versus incentives and stuff like that. But the environmental groups, when it, these, the ones, you know, it showed some of our most groups actually didn't really want a solution. They wanted an issue, Right. But those three groups, they actually wanted a solution. And then the car makers, they actually, we realized that our salute, the things we wanted were all at least compatible if they weren't the same thing. Mm. And that in the end, yeah, we, of course we all want clean air. Of course the automakers want clean air, but they kind of want to make money too. And they're in a very, very extremely competitive market. So they're always worried about that. So you come in and you help them. You give them what they need. You give them what their priority is. You give them what they think they can do. And you provide incentives which can unite, you know, in this case. So what surprised you? That I was able to pull both of those bills off. Those are both billion-dollar <laughs> bills. I, I mean, I, the, I guess, yeah. What surprised me is that I was able to do it by protecting what people really wanted. And that meant protecting what I want. I kept the climate language out. You know, I didn't want, I don't want to do a climate bill. That's not what I'm doing. I want to do energy policy. And I wanted to make the air cleaner along the way. Sure. That's, that's a nice, it's a nice, really good energy policy. I think will always lead to a cleaner environment. I think if I'm allowed to do really good policy. And so I learned that, oh, I guess what I was, what surprised me was that it worked, hmm. that it worked took a lot of work. It didn't happen quick, but it worked. That actually we are just brothers and sisters. We actually really do have the same values. And today that's really hard to believe, especially when you have the people who are, you know, the MAGAs versus, you know, the more liberals. And then you have the media playing into, you know, hard liberal stuff, which most liberals don't even really believe in to this right now. There's some things that are just a little bit wild, like I'm talking about the real extreme stuff. You know, right. Like we want guys um, running in girls' track meets. There's not a large proportion of liberals who really want that. That really want a guy wrestling a girl and winning all the gold medals. That's sort of this little extreme element, right? Most of us actually, there's, and there's same things on the conservative side. There's things that the conservatives don't really want, right? But for the most part, we're actually brothers and sisters and we want very similar things. And even if we don't want the exact same thing, like the automakers had a little bit different goals than environmentalists, but it's actually much easier to compromise if you cut through the language that's meant to divide and you leave that outside the door. 
you actually can, it's much easier to compromise, even if you don't have the same goals. Mm. We're much closer than the man or the system wants us to believe. The system has an incentive in keeping us divided. Hmm. Wow. That's powerful. Thank you so much. This has been a very educational thing. Really think about having, finding what unites us and what we all want. And by really listening to what we all want, you can always find, or at least with you, which I really believe is amazing that you created, find an agreement. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, it gives me hope. And, And I lived it, right? And so I was there 20 years. That's not the only things I did. I did some other things that were bipartisan. I did some things for oil and gas. I love oil and gas, but I also still love the environment. I love clean air. And I ran into some environmentalists and some industry folks who were also willing to let me have what I wanted. Right. Right. So, like I said, that was a, it was a very positive. I lived it. And so I still walk around with that hope. And that's why when I watch what's happening right now, I just see it as completely artificial. I don't believe it's real. I believe people's emotions are caught up in it. But if we could really sit down and find different language and see that the language is used to manipulate both sides and cut through that, that it's right there. It's right within reach just to get back to who we really are and, and compromise again. You, when's the last time Congress has passed compromise legislation? You just don't see it anymore. In our day when we were there, right? I know. We used to see it all the time. And then, but Hatch, when he was always, always involved in that, and usually the head of most, spearheading (laughs) most of those efforts, but he would also get criticized, right? He would. He would get criticized. But he did some amazing stuff. Right. But because I went through that experience, I believe it, I can see that it's just really right there and that the division is actually a facade that we're being played on both sides, that we're falling into the language that the media and the political parties are playing into us. And um, so I just don't buy it. Wow. Well, thank you. Coming to a close then, kind of like looking through this experience and your 20 years in with Senator Hatch and kind of now off the Capitol Hill and in, a, in more of an advisory role, what has been your life hack that's gotten through these moments in your life? Well, so it does play out into everything because you know, I'm a religious man. And I believe there is dark forces out there always trying to divide families relationships, communities, parties, you know, politics. There's always a force trying to divide, trying to show that there's an, provide incentives for division. And so it plays out in my personal lives too. And I see it, I see it for what it is. It's like, no, that's the force trying to divide my children from me or my relationship from me to recognize it and see it. And that's why, like right now, when I look at the politics, I don't buy it. It's like, I see what it is. This is artificial. We actually aren't at this much odds with each other. We actually agree more than we're being told we agree, and I don't buy it. And so to be able to do that in your relationships, in your communities, whether it's your church group or your business or whatever. And so it's helped me because I'm a lobbyist now for the last eight years. I've been just my own, just get my own clients. So I get to do my own issues, whatever issues I really want. And I haven't had one issue with about 12 or 13 different clients that wasn't bipartisan. And so that's another, that, that teaches me also. And, and that helps me be successful too, because if it were partisan, I'd have a hard time getting it passed. Right. And so the kind of still important issues, still the kind of issues that are going to save America. Like we're trying to bring rare earth industry back to the U S things like really need, you know, and I'm finding out that 
if you have a real issue, it's always bipartisan. Mm. And that I could make it partisan very easily, but they're not naturally partisan. Most good issues are bipartisan. And they're only made bipartisan because somebody has an incentive to do so. And so mm. for the life hack is I see it happening like an argument here within a family or there. I see it, it's like, no, that's that force. I bet we probably agree. And I find out that it's applicable in our interpersonal relationships too. Thank you, Jason. Mm-hmm. This is so enlightening. <laughs> I've heard you say it so many times before, but now I like got it from the beginning to the end and I really got to think about it. Wow, that's really powerful. Yeah, there's a lot of truth there. I didn't make any of it up. I mean, like these ideas, they, they just found out. That was the surprise. It's like, hey, this works. <laughs> <laughs> I believed it, but hey, it actually works. You know, it's hard to pass a bill. So it's what did Hatch say to, to all of this? Well, he loved it. He loved he it. He must have been so surprised. Well, it's his way. Yeah. I learned it from him. I mean, I came naturally with that. My family's sort of that way. We're right. kind of peacemakers, right? But maybe that's what attracted me to him. But, oh, it's absolutely. I mean, he. this was not something new to him. This was his way. This was the Hatch way. Was he surprised when he got all these awards for these bills? And did, nah, he ever say, did he ever say anything he to you? awards or? all the time. <laughs> because the same people are doing that on health care. The same people are doing that on finance. That His staff were the very best of staff. And they're there because they want to accomplish things. And that's his people. It wasn't until I left that his people really started kind of changing to more like, hey, let's just do what the leadership says. And that was around the time I left. And I, that wasn't hatched. That was sort of just management. The staff kind of changed a little bit, kind of got a little bit jaded with the Tea Party. And, um, but for most of my career, except for those last couple of years, that was just, that was the mentality of the entire staff. They would all have their exact same stories like mine, just in different areas, you know, education or healthcare. or transportation. So it's like a hatchway, finding the middle ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's great. Well, thank you, JJ. Mm -hmm. This is great. Thanks for the opportunity to talk Mm -hmm. about it. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you happen to like this episode, please share with your friends. And if you're new, please pop on over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and how we can improve and make this better or how this has helped you. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode.